that we deal with in our personal life. And I just pray that this would be a reminder as we refocus on that. God, people have come from every different background and every different circumstance into this place today. Some are encouraged and having a great time and feeling really good. Others, not so much, feeling like, wow, I don't know, I'm going to get through this day or this week or this circumstance. I'm waiting for that answer to prayer. It, you just haven't come through yet, but I just pray, God, that you'll remind us of your faithfulness and that you always hear and you always answer. And I pray that you'll build our faith today, that we would focus on you and that we would realize you are the God of the universe. And I pray today, Lord, as we, as we move forward into your word and then celebrate communion together, that you would transform our lives, that we would be changed because we've been in your presence with you and heard from your word. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. We are in a journey through Genesis. On September 8th, we began our series entitled, This Is Us, The Beginning. First, the beginning of God, beginning, or beginning God. God is the center of the universe. He didn't have a beginning. God created all things, and God spoke, and, and it happened. The second week, we looked at the creation of people, mankind. People were created unique in the image of God and also had free will. Week three, we looked at the origin of marriage. The fact that after seeing everything he had made, God said, it is good. And then he said, it is not good that man should be alone. So he created woman and started marriage. Week four brought us the origin of sin, what theologians call the fall. Adam and Eve had a choice, and they chose poorly. And the results of their choice became evident in their children, Cain and Abel. But despite the poor choices and that, that, and sins and mistakes of those first human beings on the planet, God remains faithful and constant and forgiving and available. He continues to pursue that relationship with people. And at the last line of chapter 4, it says, at that time, men began to call on the name of the Lord. So human beings began to respond and to call on God's name. Today, we're going to look at Genesis 5. Genesis 5. Now, Genesis 5 reads mostly like an obituary page in the local paper, without the pictures, of course. Most people skip over five, not only because they don't want to think about mortality and death, but because they don't like numbers or names they can't pronounce. I understand that. But there are a lot of nuggets that we can pick out of chapter five, so I want to talk about it today. Today we're going to look at life and death. Life and death, what can we learn? If you'll turn with me to Genesis 5, it's on page 4 in the Bible in the rack in front of you. Genesis 5, we're going to read several parts of passages here, not the whole chapter, but Genesis 5, starting with verse 1. This is the written account of Adam's line. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female and blessed them. And when they were created, he called them man. When Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image, and he named him Seth. After Seth was born, Adam lived 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Adam lived 930 years, and then he died. 
We move on to verse 21. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he became the father of Methuselah. And after he became the father of Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enoch lived 365 years. Enoch walked with God. Then he was no more because God took him away. Verse 27, altogether, Methuselah lived 969 years and then he died. After Noah was 500 years old, he became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. When we go through chapter 5 of Genesis, we find that one thing all but one of them had in common. They all lived, and they all died. And we have a reminder in verse 1 that, that we were created in the image of God, unique with a capacity to relate to God personally, and having dominion over the rest of creation. This quality, the image of God, is passed on to Adam and Eve's offspring, their children. In verse 3 it says, Adam had a son in his own likeness, in his own image. Now Judy and I have two daughters. One of the fascinating, fascinating parts of having children is seeing how much your children are like you, or not, should be not. And fortunately or unfortunately, our children have many of our character traits. And of course, this ability to relate to God, made in the image of God, was passed on through humanity all the way to us. The primary character trait unique to humans is that we are created in the image of God, which means we have the capacity to know God. We have the capacity to know good from evil, to know right from wrong, and we are spiritual beings. We're not just physical beings, we are spiritual beings as well. And because of that quality, we can find answers in the Word of God as to our purpose in life. Our purpose in life. Let's, let's start with Roman numeral one, learning to deal with life. I'm not going to give you all the life problems and answers, but let's just start with learning to deal with life. It, people in chapter five lived and they died. The question was, why? Why? Why were they alive? Rick Warren wrote a book, 40 Days of Purpose, and he lists three great questions of life. Three great questions of life. The first one is a question of existence. Question of existence. Why am I alive? If you've ever asked that question, why am I alive? People have been asking this question for centuries. Why was I born? Is this all there is? An ancient prophet named Jeremiah asked it and recorded in Jeremiah 2018, why was I born? Was it only to have trouble and sorrow to end my life in disgrace? He was, I don't think he was an optimist. He was probably more of a pessimist. Have you ever asked the why question that way? Was I born just to have problems and headaches and stress? And why is life so hard? I mean, have anybody asked that? Okay. Anybody up there? Okay, just checking. We have problems. Well, if you have kids or parents or in-laws or teachers or coaches or friends, you have stress. You're going to have problems. But the question is, is that all there is? Dr. Hugh Moorhead, chairman of the Department of Philosophy at Northeastern University, once wrote well-known philosophers, scientists, writers, and intellectuals of the world, and asked them this question, what is the purpose of life? What is the, he, he wrote this to the smartest people on earth. What is the purpose of, earth, of, of life? Then he wrote a book with their answers. Some offered their best guesses. Some admitted that they made up a purpose in life. 
Others admitted they had no idea what the purpose of life was. In fact, Carl Jung, the famous psychiatrist, said, I don't know the meaning, the purpose of life, but it looks as if something were meant by it. What? These are smart people. Something were meant. It's tragic. They don't know. What on earth am I here for? What on earth am I here for? Life without purpose is life without meaning. Some use different approaches to discovering the answer of why. The mystic will say, look within. Find your purpose within. The survivalist will say the purpose of life is to stay alive. Live as long as you can. And we, we try to do a pretty good job of that. We take, we take low, low blood pressure medication and cholesterol medication, and we take all kinds of things for our cancer risk. We eat, exercise, lose weight, whatever, and we do everything we can to keep this, this body alive. Some people don't bother, and they just say, ah, I'm just going to go on. The hedonist says the purpose of life is pleasure. Have fun. Party hard. The materialist says life is about the acquisition of things, and your life is measured by what you own. So whatever you own, that's your life. Rick Warren said the problem is that he who dies with the most toys still dies. So what does the Bible say about our purpose? Is there a purpose to this life that we live today. Proverbs 16, 49 says, the Lord has made everything for his own purpose. So every rock, every plant, every animal, every person has a purpose. If you're alive, everybody check your pulse, make sure you're alive. If you're alive, you have a purpose. God has a purpose for you. Ephesians 1, 4 in the message says, long before he laid down earth's foundation, he had us in his mind and settled on us as the focus of his love to may be made whole and holy by his love. So I'm alive. I, I'm alive to be loved, loved by God, to be loved. When asked, do you think all of us really want, deep down, is to be loved? Garrison Keeler responded, no, we want to be rich, to be admired, to eat like a horse and be skinny as a snake to have small children ask for autographs, to be on a terrific medications to make us calm and witty and sexy, to sing Irving Berlin and Gershwin and Porter at the Oak Room and be described in the Times as luminous. But in the absence of all that, it's enough to be loved. True, why am I alive? The answer is, I was created to be loved by God. Now God doesn't need us, he didn't get lonely and make us, but he made us in order to love us. God didn't need us, but he wanted us. He created us to have a relationship with us, to love us. We are on earth to be loved by God. The second great question of life is the question of significance. Does my life matter? Does my life matter? You look at all the millions of people all over the globe and you say, I'm just one tiny speck on this globe. Does my life really matter? This is really a, a statement of, I am insignificant, or am I significant? Now, we're not the first persons that ask this. In fact, in fact the, uh, the people in, the, in, in Corinth asked this question of significance. And Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1, he says, Brothers, think of what you were called, what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things, the things that 
are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. Paul is writing about ordinary people in the city of Corinth that considered themselves insignificant. They asked the question, just like we asked, does my life really matter? And I'm sure the guys that lived in Genesis, the people living in Genesis, living over 900 years, can you imagine? You, you're going to start asking, why am I alive? Does my life matter? Does my life matter? And in 1 Corinthians, Paul starts where it needs to on God's initiative. He says, you are called. In other words, God initiated relationship to each and every one of us. He's initiated a relationship with you. He's the initiating, searching God who calls each of us and every one of us. This coincides with being made in the image of God. Then, then Paul lists what significance is not. It's just as important to realize where our significance does not come from so that we can find out where it comes from. He says, not the wise, not the wise. The emphasis here is on the wise, the intellectual, highly educated. Now, there were no doubt some highly educated intellectual people in this church in Corinth, just like here. Most of the people were probably uneducated, non-intellectual. They were simple folk. And in Greek culture, one obtained significance through wisdom, education, and intellect. Wisdom, education, and intellect. Is it any different today? Who do we elevate as significant in our world today? Those who have degrees. Those who have degrees. Law degree, doctor's degree, master's degree, bachelor's degree. The educated, the intelligent, the intellectually elite. They are significant. They're significant. Does Paul denigrate education? No, no, he doesn't denigrate education. He was one of the most highly educated of all people in the New Testament. But he does say in verse 27, God chose the foolish things in the world to shame the wise. Why does he say that? Because we tend to base our significance in our world on our own accomplishments, our wisdom, our education, and our intellect. Paul writes, there's no reason to boast about your accomplishments because your significance is found elsewhere. Your significance is found in Jesus Christ. Also, he says, not the powerful. It's not found in the powerful. Not many are influential. This is another way we seek significance, by power and influence. Who in the world do we elevate and say they are important? The powerful, the political power, economic power, positions of authority and influence. They are important. They're significant. But verse 27 states, God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. What does that mean? True power and true strength is not as the world sees it. Human strength is nothing. God's power is everything. The third place significance is not found is not high society or not of noble birth. Now, Paul does, never denigrates high society, the wealthy or the aristocracy. He doesn't denigrate the educated or powerful. He just levels a playing field and says to all of them, that's not where you find your significance. He just shows it in comparison to God's standards. Everybody's foolish, weak, and trivial. So these are ordinary people. This is... This is us. This is, this is us. How many of you out there have, have bought or sold a house? Okay. A lot of you have bought or sold a house. Now, when you're going to buy, when you're going to sell a house, how do, you, how do you establish how much the house is worth? What, how do you know what the worth is? It's 
Market value, right? What's market value? What is market value? It's whatever someone's willing to pay. Whatever, whatever someone's willing to pay. You can set the price anywhere you want. If they can't pay, it's not market value. You won't sell it. How do we know how value we, valuable we are? What was God willing to pay for you? For you. How much was he willing to pay? What, how much was Jesus willing to pay for you? His life. His life. We're going to celebrate a little bit. His life. That's value. That's value. Question, does my life matter? Yes, my value is found in Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ. Then there's the question of intention. What is my purpose? What is my purpose? What on earth am I here for? God made you special and unique. The only way then we can discover our purpose is to look to God. Colossians 1.16 says, For everything, absolutely everything, above and below, visible and invisible, everything got started in him and finds its purpose in him. Ephesians 1.11, It's in Christ that we find out who we are living for. Part of the overall purpose he is working out in everything and everyone from the message. Now, as I look out over this congregation, I know that there, we have in this congregation people who do electrical work, electricians, plumbers, carpenters, uh, people who can do sheetrock, all that. A lot of people have different skills, and every skill uses a different tool, different tool. And when I go to a job site, I see all kinds of tools. I'll, I'll see a table saw, a miter saw, a skill saw, the router, drills, nail guns, air compressors. Sometimes I'll even see a hammer. They don't use them very often, but usually they use power tools. Every tool is made for a specific purpose, and we must know the purpose for which that tool was made in order to use it properly. Now, there are others of you that are in the tech industry, and you know that you use certain software for certain jobs, okay? You usually don't use Microsoft Word for number processing or numbers. You use Excel. And if you've used Publisher, you know that it's really awkward for word processing, okay? You get the picture. The right tool for the right job. Those of you in the healthcare industry have sophisticated computer software to track everything from records to test results to proper medications and dosages. And it all needs to be used properly for the purpose for which the tool was designed in order for it to, to work right. If we don't know the purpose for something, it's likely to be misused or abused. So, so why are there are so many broken and abused people today. Why so many broken and abused people today? Because they don't know their purpose. They don't know their purpose. How do we get to know the purpose of our life, the purpose of what we are here for? Read the manual. Check with the inventor, the software developer. How do we discover our purpose? Read the manual, the Bible. Check with the inventor. Our Father knows best. When we try to operate our lives outside of his purpose for us, it doesn't work very well. And that's when we get broken and abused and, and our lives get shattered. That's why God created marriage, our gender, our families, our top ten guidelines called the Ten Commandments. What's my purpose? I find my purpose by getting to know God, getting to know God. If we want to discover our purpose, we need, need to get to know God. The more we get to know God, the more we'll get to understand His ways, the more we'll understand the actual meaning of life, the meaning of life. 
These are questions I'm sure they had in Genesis 5 as much as today. In verse 24, probably one of the most interesting passages in, in Scripture, I think it's very fascinating. When it says, verse 24, where am I? Okay, there. <laughs> okay. It says, says, Enoch lived 365 years. Enoch walked with God and then he was no more because God took him away. Enoch got to know God so well that God took him. Where? I don't know. To be with him, I guess, wherever that is. They were such close friends, God said, I want you up here. Uh, he beamed them up or something. You know, That was the first instance of being beamed up. To be with God. So he didn't have to. That's one person that we know of that, besides Elijah, I think, that never had to experience death. Death. Now, the rest of them in chapter 5 were not so lucky, not so fortunate. One very clear concept is that even though people lived a long time, they had one thing in common for sure. They all died. They all died. Part of life. Let's look at Roman number 2. Learning to deal with death. Learning to deal with death. Now, we do not need to fear death. I talk to people and I sometimes am at the bedside of people who are in the last stages, their last breath. And some fear, some do not. I've been at the, the most peaceful deaths you can experience because they didn't fear death. We don't need to fear death. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Eternal life. Whoever believes in the Son, John 3.36, in the Son has eternal life. Whoever rejects the Son will not see life for God's wrath remains on him. Now this is a, this is a huge topic, but I want to look at three concepts today. We're covering a lot of ground, so I'm going to move fast. Please uh, hang on here. John 14. John 14, 1 to 3, says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. When we die, what happens? Letter A, we go to a new home. Go to a new home. Where, where is this home? Well, we're not sure exactly, but we do know that it's where Jesus is. It's where Je He says, where are you? you? I want you to come and be with me. I'm going to prepare a place. I'm going to set it up for you so that you can come and be with me. What does it look like? We're not sure. The Bible calls it paradise, paradise. Some people think that's an interim step until heaven or whatever. We, we don't know all those answers. We have more questions than answers, but that's okay. When we die, we go to be with Jesus where he is. It might be paradise. Now, paradise sounds good to me. It's like the difference between Hawaii and North Dakota. Okay, you, 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 you pick it. Okay, but paradise sounds good. And eventually in the future, it's heaven, a new heaven, a new, new earth. It's being in the presence of God where Jesus is. It's a great deal. We trade this place for that. See, death is not to be feared because death is just a transition from this life to the next life. When we die, we go to a new home. Secondly, when we die, we receive 
We receive a new body. Now, death is a huge mystery to us, and we don't really understand it very well. Only one person really understood the full meaning of death because he came back again, and that's Jesus. Death is just a beginning. It's a change point. It's a transition from one, one type of life to another type of life. We have a lot of questions about that, and so it's hard, it's hard to understand that. This, this passage is a whole sermon in itself. I just want to hit some high points to talk about dealing with death. In 1 Corinthians 15, 42 to 44, Paul writes, Some may ask, how are the dead raised? What kind of body will they be? How foolish. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or something else. Then he talks about that. The, these people were asking, is there life after death? Great question. Is there meaning in life? And is there life after death? And if there is life after death, what is it like? What kind of bodies will we have? What kind of existence will it be? What's the nature of our future state? And Paul uses agriculture, something we understand in Wisconsin. He uses agriculture to help teach this principle. He says the body must die first. This body must die first. Uh, this life has to end before the next begins. In other words, and he uses the seed. A seed goes in the ground, it dies, and then it, then it raises up, and a whole new plant begins. But unless that seed dies, unless the life of that seed ends, the new life will never begin. And so he uses that as an agriculture. This part needs to die first. We spend a lot of time and energy keeping this life going. It's a natural thing to do that. But we don't spend much time preparing for phase two, the next life. And the Bible tells us death is inevitable. And, an, and it's also a new beginning. And last time I checked, the mortality rate for all humans was and still is 100%. But death is a transition to a new life. It's not to be feared. Because you can't go to this new life until this life ends. 2 Corinthians 5.8 says to be away from the bodies, to be at home with the Lord. And that's what it takes. That dies. One life in two modes, one before death, one after death, and the resurrection. Truth number two, this body is perishable, the next is imperishable. In other words, this, this life will end, we all know that. The next one will not end. And I know this body is aging, I have knees. The next body is imperishable, lives forever, forever. Three, this body is sown in dishonor and raised in power. Uh, th this is a natural body. The next body is a spiritual body. The best thing I can describe it with was the body that Jesus had after he was resurrected. It was, he, you know, he'd go through walls. He'd you know, thought travel, all those things. He had no limitations. He had a totally different body. And he says, that's the kind of body we're going to have someday. 1 Corinthians 15 and 50 says... I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the per imperishable. Now the question is, is there such a thing as a guarantee of eternal life? Can we know? Can we know? We'll get to this a little bit further. But we can know. We look at Philippians 1, 20. 20 through 24. says, so that now as always Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or death. For to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. 
but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. He's talking about the two existences. When we die, let us see, we enter a new relationship. We enter a new relationship. For me to live is Christ. We see Jesus face to face, face to face. Now some people wonder, is there such a thing as reincarnation? The Bible, the Bible says no. Hebrews 9.27 says, just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment. So if you want to know what the Bible says, it's clear. Well, let's, learn, let's talk about learning to deal with life after death. Number three, learning to deal with life after death. Now, there's nothing in Genesis 5, as we look at this passage, Genesis 5, there's nothing about the afterlife or life after death, except for verse 24, which talks about Enoch, who just got translated, or just went up. But the rest of the Bible is very clear that mankind has a choice of two destinations, two destinations. People say, only two? Can't there be more? No. The Bible gives us two. There's heaven and there's hell. Two destinations either inside, in the presence of God or outside the presence of God. Now, hell was created not for humans. It was created for the devil and his angels. But despite that, unless we accept God's gift of salvation through Jesus Christ, and I don't say this, Jesus said it, the Bible says it, if we don't accept the gift of salvation through Jesus, we will go to hell. But if we accept his free gift, we will have eternal life. Now, I would be... I would be remiss if I didn't warn people that you got two choices, two destinations, and it's totally your choice. If you accept Jesus, you go to heaven. If you don't, go to hell. Let me tell the story about a lady named Hazel. Hazel was a dear elderly woman, about 80 years old, who attended our church in Lakewood, Washington. And I wasn't sure where she was and how, how she felt about things. She had been attending for about a year and a half. And one afternoon, I received a phone call that Hazel, who had emphysema, very serious emphysema, had been rushed to Madigan Army Hospital. So I quickly drove to the hospital to see Hazel. By, by the time I got there, she was conscious and she was breathing fine. So I stood by her bedside and I said, Hazel, what happened? And she said... I quote, I almost died. I need to get saved. I said, do you want to get saved? She said, oh, yes. I said, do you know how? She said, please help me. So I described to Hazel, and I led her in a prayer of salvation for confessing her sins, asking Jesus to come into her life. At 80-plus years old, Hazel became a believer. There were, we were in this ward. There were eight other people around. And so I'm hoping everybody got saved that day. But I know that Hazel got saved. If we believe in Jesus, according to John 6, 3.16, we will have eternal life. And if we die, we will go to be with God. It's life after death. Life after death. Guaranteed. Now, there's another exciting possibility for those who are living in the last days. We're just going to touch on this just a bit because some people want to know, tell me more about life after death. There's another possibility. It's called the second coming of Jesus. It's also called the rapture, the rapture, letter B, the rapture. 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13. 
says, brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or die, those who die, or grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, so, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive and are left till the coming of the Lord will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. Wow. It's called the rapture. Now, there's a lot of stuff out there about the end times theology. And there's a lot of misinformation. There's a lot of good information. A lot of things we don't know. What we do know is that Jesus is coming again. And those who are in Jesus Christ will be raised up in the rapture. It says those who are dead in Christ will rise first. That's not the, the Baptists or Methodists. That's the, the people who have already died. They're in the grave. Jesus comes down. They're raised up from the ground. Some of you didn't get that. That's okay. That, <laughs> I apologize if you're on, online. Anyway, it, those who are dead in Christ are already buried. They, they, get, they come from their, their remains, wherever they are, are raised from the dead, and we who are alive and remain go up to meet him in the air. It's called the rapture. It's called the hope that we all have, that someday, now we don't know when that's going to happen. There are all kinds of speculation about how that's going to happen, when it's going to happen. All I know is that someday it is going to happen. And I would love to be around still when that happens, wouldn't you? When the rapture comes and we all get raised together with everybody. And this says, you will see him, you'll be like him, for you'll know him as he is. You'll see him as he is. Now, if you want to read more about that, there's Matthew 24, 1 Corinthians 15, Revelation 21. And in fact, Revelation 21, 1 to 4 is the description of the finale of life after death. Now, as we finish today, I just want to ask the question, can we know, can we know for sure that we're going to heaven? You know, I, I've, I've asked people this question, if you, if you die tonight, do you know for sure you go to heaven? And then the other question is, if you did die, and you were at the gate of heaven, you, and Jesus met you and said, why should I let you in my heaven? What would your answer be? What would your answer be? We can know for sure that we are going to heaven. If you have any doubt, you can settle that today. 1 John 5, 11 to 13 says, and this is the testimony God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. He who has the Son, Jesus, has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. You can know. Believe in Jesus. Place our trust in him. Because we're separated from God because of our sins. But Jesus came to die for our sins to restore that relationship. And to believe in Jesus is to acknowledge I'm a sinner I can't save myself to ask for forgiveness for my sins and then place my trust in Jesus and accept his sacrifice as his free gift and ask Jesus to be my boss, my CEO, the Lord. Ask him to come in and take control of my life. 
If you do that, then you too can have eternal life, life after death, guaranteed, guaranteed, guaranteed. I'm going I'm to ask if you just bow your head for just a minute. I just want to take some time. If you've never prayed a prayer to receive Jesus, just repeat this after me in your heart as I pray it aloud because I don't want anybody to leave without knowing for sure that they have eternal life. This would be the prayer. Lord Jesus, I need you. I admit that I'm a sinner. Please forgive my sins. Come into my heart, into my life. Take charge and make me the person you want me to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.